in Japan, the term for a man who doesn't have a girlfriend or won't ever have a girl- girlfriend is a herb man. As in, like, a, <laughs> <laughs> so he just exists on vegetables. He's not really a real man. So we have all of these very, very unconscious, I think, um, but uh, palpable associations and and infused meaning in in what when and why we choose to eat. It's one of the things that our brains need most in the whole world. Food. What you eat will affect how you grow, what you think, and it turns out even your chances of going to prison. And the food we eat, what it is and where it comes from, is one of the biggest things to worry about when it comes to doing something, or not, about climate change. But all of that being as it may, none of us deal particularly well with being told we should eat differently. Why? What is our psychology around food? Uh, what might it tell us about what to do about the climate crisis? I'm Dave and I've been campaigning and talking about climate change for the best part of two decades and there is so much I don't know about one of the most important causes of it all, human brains and how they work. Your Brain on Climate is a podcast about psychology and what it can teach us about climate change, how we got it and what we might do about it. Joining me this week is Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist, author and lecturer in food. She writes and talks about food and lifestyle and the role that they play in our mental health, including in things like how our society works. And yeah, she was once a finalist in the Great British Bake Off, but we don't talk about that. Instead, what we talk about is food and development and violence, food and mental health, including for saving the planet, and how we need to understand people's real relationship to food if we're really serious about getting them to eat something else. Now, as anyone who's listened to the pilot will know, we don't want you to worry if you hear something mentioned in passing, which is a link to something you might want to go away and read about later. You'll just hear this noise... I've replaced the twinkly noise I used in the pilot with a nice soothing owl noise to denote wisdom. And when you hear this noise, it means there's something in the show notes that explains and expands upon the thing you've just heard. So you don't have to worry about it for now. Carry on listening. So to start with, I asked Kimberly, well, I made an admission about my own awful eating habits. I asked her whether or not I was the problem. Your brain, Your brain on climate. I want to talk about food first of all, and I want to talk about a frequent disagreement that I have <laughs> okay. with my lovely with my lovely partner. Um, <laughs> She's an amazing cook. I'm like I, I can follow a recipe and I put some effort in, but most of the time, see with food, I can't really be bothered. Like I can't be bothered to sit and kind of think about what to eat. I, I often be found sitting on the floor eating a bowl of pasta with nothing on it. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I get told off for not caring enough about my own nutrition. Do you think that's right? Um, well, even in a very kind of therapeutic stance. Do you think that's right, Dave? <laughs> I think it's probably not right. <laughs> I think just eating raw pasta, not raw pasta, I do cook it, not a dog, um, I think um, is not right. I think I'm not getting all my nutrients. 
I think, so food has a lot of different effects on different people. And I think one of the things I certainly do come across is this idea that it's, it is very complicated and it's very overwhelming. And I think there are a group of people who just, who get overwhelmed by the choice and the decisions and the rules and the expectations and that that sits within their concept of what food and eating are. And that's when you find yourself sitting, rocking in the corner, just eating cereal out of the box because it's just too much to think about. Um, whereas I think there is the, there are another group of people who look at food perhaps more playfully you know what can I as a creative outlet maybe what can mm. I make what is it what can I do with this what, where's the adventure in this material and let's see what happens and so I would suggest that probably you're more group a um and <laughs> somewhere along the line right. you got this kind of very strong message about what food should be I think so often there's something about what a meal should be and mm. what it, its constituents parts should be um and I think if you can just free yourself from those rules if you can just unpick those little tangled threads of what a meal should look like and what you should have to do and what nutrients should be on the plate and how it should be presented then you'll free yourself up from maybe some of that overwhelm and you can just be a bit more playful with it and, and just start with well what do i fancy maybe if i just fancy a potato how can i make this potato tasty so you have done a lot about food and psychology right mm -hmm. the psychology of food and how did you get in a uh, in a nutshell? Honey? How did you how did you get into that? And what is that link as you see it? Um, I think there are many links, and I think that, I'm sure there are lots of different ways that I've come to it. The, the clearest in my mind, the most conscious one, is when I was working in prison, um, and for several years I was running a therapy service in what was then Europe's largest women's prison, wow. um, H and P Holloway, which is now closed. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It closed a few years ago. Um, well, I won't go down. That's a big segue. Like, <laughs> just, it was it was a terrible idea. It shouldn't have been um, closed. No, yeah. it shouldn't right. have been closed. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> but at the time, so I one of the the big issues about women's prisons in particular, prisons in general, but women's prisons in particular, is that the rates of self harm. Women self harm at a rate which is extraordinarily high and much higher than men you know women made up something like five or six percent of the overall prison population but at the time were responsible for something like nearly 50 percent of the the acts of self-harm at least as it was recorded and so i would have to sit in these um meetings with the security department and safety and, and and safety and custody services thinking about how we keep these women safe and at around that time a replication study came out so there had been a study um published in the UK in 2002 and then I was in prisons from around uh, 2007, 2008 um, and around 2009-10 I think a big uh, replication study came out from the Netherlands, the Ministry of Justice in the Netherlands showing again that if you improve nutrition in prisons through supplementation in this case, it wasn't improving their overall diets which is tricky but by giving supplements compared to placebo so you know, one group was getting a placebo and didn't know that they weren't getting an active um, nutrient. Um, but you were able to reduce incidents, so objective incidents of violence. You look in the book and see how many incidents of violence have been on, on the wing that day. Yeah. You're able to reduce objective incidents of violence by 30%. Three zero. Three zero percent. Wow. And 
in the original study in 2002, that had been about kind of 33%, I think. In the Netherlands study, actually the gap was bigger than that because the placebo group got worse. So the actual difference between the active arm of the trial and the placebo group was some, somewhere closer to 45%. And so here I am in prison trying to keep women safe, trying to stop them from hurting themselves and or each other and thinking, well, this is extraordinary. Here's this very cheap, you know, it costs pennies a day to supplement. We have uh, an accessible route to provide the supplements because we have nurses providing medication to everyone in prisons. Prisons are incredibly highly medicated organisations and, and environments. People are, many, many people are sedated and many people are coming off drugs and withdrawals. Lots of people are on psychotropic um, medications for their psychiatric disorders and illnesses. So we have means of distribution. So it's cheap, it's accessible, and there are low risks. Why aren't we doing this? And so I try to get conversations with governors to see, you know, whether, could we do a small trial? Could we try this? And it basically got nowhere. Um, but that, I think, at least consciously, was the point where I thought, well, this is extraordinary. We know now, you know, and um, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomised trials are the gold standard for causality in in clinical studies. We know now we've got two trials and now there's been another one in Singapore and two that were published last year. We know that if you improve nutrition, people feel better and they're less violent. That sounds like something we should be trying. That's um, so crazy, isn't it? Because like you kind of like you kind of think that nutrition is a thing that like over on the long term is mm, good for you. Mm -hmm. But kind of what you're describing is like, no no, like kind of overnight. Pretty acutely. So we were looking yeah. eight to twelve weeks Wow. seeing these really profound effects and you know you can there are anger management courses up the casbah <laughs> in this population like you can't move for people trying to give you courses on how to think more clearly you know the abc your antecedents your behavior the consequences trying to get you to think more rationally about the things that you've done but you cannot think rationally on a brain that fundamentally doesn't have the constituents it needs to work properly and mm. this is where we come in you know that People talk a lot about, you know, how much, what should I eat for my serotonin or how can I boost my serotonin or what should I, how can I, you know, improve my melatonin to sleep better? But your, let's start with your serotonin is made of nutrients. It doesn't just emerge out of your brain from nowhere. Serotonin, that big neurotransmitter of feeling good, mm. is made of iron it's made of, of tryptophan it's it, you need b vitamins and vitamin c in order to actually produce it so if you do not have those constituent parts in sufficient amounts you simply will not have a brain that's working properly and and so that's when i kind of set forth <laughs> on my soapbox to get wow. more people thinking about this it's just I don't know why I find this so mind-blowing. I think partially because I just sit on the floor eating pasta and don't really think about it. But I, 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 you're saying something that's so obviously true, but there mm -hmm. is but there is something about just that sense that the, the actual stuff you put into you is the only stuff that gets in. And like, that stuff yes. is, ha is what literally makes up your brain yes. and your mood. So it this stuff does matter. It really right? matters. It really, really matters. Um, so much so that, you know, there is, there's a plethora of studies showing for it. Well, I mean, where should we start? 
obviously, as I said, you, you are made of food. So in utero, of course, you're composed of what your mother is eating. Um, and, and they're broken down into to, you know, amino acids and fatty acids, and, they, and then they make you. Um, and in particular, the omega-3 fatty acids make your brain. Your brain is composed of fats that are called essential because your body cannot make them and your mother's body cannot make them. You have to get them from the diet. So a a pregnant woman who is not eating enough omega-3 fatty acids cannot supply the right building blocks for the baby's brain. So already a baby born to a mother who is deficient in DHA, one of these essential omega-3 fatty acids, is going to have a baby whose brain is 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 more vulnerable. It doesn't have as many connections. It won't be as resistant to stress. It won't be able to develop as fully as a mother who had who was eating, you know, enough oily fish or or supplementing appropriately. And so it starts from there. And and you see differences in those groups of children in terms of their academic ability, in terms of their externalizing behaviors, their their likelihood of um, you know, acting out, um, punching, biting, scratching, that sort of thing. And all of those things have a knock-on effect on how that child is perceived, right? So mm. whether you've got a child who is able to sit down and focus and concentrate versus a child who is irritable, acting out, makes a difference to how they're perceived by their teachers, by their peer group, and so forth. So these are really important knock-on effects that start in utero, but obviously early life and, and childhood nutrition is a big part on, on how the brain develops and therefore how your behaviour uh, your behavioural trajectory um, goes forward as well. Because that study, well, the studies you were talking mm. about and the work you were doing in prison, like one way I guess that could be interpreted is when people are in a situation, what they can make them more or less likely to be stroppy and have fights. But it sounds like what is what you, or something. It sounds like <laughs> what you're saying also. But I don't. This feels like it's a, this isn't what you're saying because it's too mm. simplistic. But there's a large element of if you eat properly and you are you have the right nutrients you might be a lot less likely to go to prison in the first place that is exactly what i'm saying Dave. Hey. <laughs> so the, the same effects um, hold for children and adolescents as well and even more so right because your brain is still developing until you're 25 right so you're, you're basically still an adolescent until your mid-20s um, and there's a lot of what's called kind of pruning going on so um, connections that aren't really needed are being shaved back in order to help shape a brain that is best fitted for that environment because that's what your brain does it fits your you for your particular environment that you find yourself in which is why we have such diverse um ways of thinking and ways of being and existing in very diverse um environments across the across the planet right it allows us to adapt so you have this extraordinary period of, of pruning and, and, and plasticity and your brain reshaping but at the same time for adolescence you have this influx of hormones which is just going to mess you up it's just it makes it all a bit of a mess um but it means that nutrition is incredibly important at this during this period you know making sure that this rapidly developing brain is getting what it needs but we know for example that children who are hungry explain more 
externalizing behaviors and one of the reasons is that when you're hungry and you're, when your blood sugar drops um, you get a rise in cortisol because cortisol helps to release energy into your bloodstream but it also makes you agitated right and that's why we talk about hunger um, and yeah. if an adult gets hungry then think about a, a child who is hungry um, and but doesn't have the skills to be able to you know manage their behavior or understand that the way they're acting, their irritability, their agitation is because they're hungry and not because they hate the person they're sitting next to or they're angry with the teacher. And so we have this kind of, we all a group of children who simply for the, for the fact that they aren't getting enough to eat will be exhibiting behaviors that we call naughty or bad um, and will therefore be labeled with that. But also, you know, alongside that, that because their brains aren't getting the nutrients needed to grow and to, to function well, will have difficulties with attention, will have difficulties sustaining te- attention for the half hour, hour that a lesson is. Um, it takes a lot of energy. Your brain is the hungriest organ in the body. It will take a lot of energy to sit down and concentrate on difficult tasks, difficult sums. And if you are depleted to start with, then you will struggle academically. Children who eat breakfast do better academically. Children who even when you control for other indices of deprivation, children on free school meals are four times more likely to be kicked out of school. And that hunger, the behavioural antecedents or consequences of hunger is part of the behaviour that gets them kicked out of school. And I think that is an absolute scandal. So I have been working for years and years and years and years and years on climate changey sort of stuff not just exclusively climate changey sort of stuff like other green things hippie things (laughs) right and i've worked in offices which obviously i haven't done for kind of 18 months now i've Mm -hmm. worked in offices and one thing i would say is not entirely true but quite consistently true is that people don't eat lunch properly they, they will either they will either a I definitely include myself in this right they will either a sit at the desk because there's too much to do and everything is busy and the planet is burning and they haven't got time and they'll just sort of shove some bread in their face or something and barely chew it and it goes down or they'll mm. go to a greasy spoon and they'll have a plate of chips or beans or something mm-hmm. like that and the other so there's that and then the other thing I notice is there's an awful lot of people working on climate changey stuff that are all strung out and depressed and burned out mm. kind of. And I wonder if one of the first things we need to be doing then, if what we're trying to do is save the planet, is have a proper lunch. <laughs> lunch will save everything. Well, like, I, I think, yeah, I, I come across, because I, because I work with you know, issues with food and digestion and IBS, um, I see a fair amount of this. And I think one of the things that it's important to know is that your body is very sensitive to to kind of what we call valence it's pleasantness versus unpleasantness um but also that eating is requires a different kind of neurological environment to work so we think about the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic nervous system so your sympathetic nervous system being that fight flight activity movement action getting stuff done um and your parasympathetic nervous system being what literally we call it the rest and digest system Uh let's settle down let's stop for a moment um let's just allow our food to digest and so those are different 
it's like a seesaw one is on and one is off you cannot be stressed and active and moving and eating and digesting properly at the same time it will not work because what happens when you're when you're stressed is that your blood um your bloodstream is is divested it's moved away from the gut into your limbs so that you can get on or into your brain so that you can get on and do the thing that you're doing and so your digestion will slow when you're stressed or when you're working very hard when you're concentrating and focusing and so trying to eat whilst checking emails or Mm. on the phone or you know in the middle of a a busy meeting is bloody twitter or on, on <laughs> or read like doom scrolling on Twitter is a terrible idea in terms of digestion. And it kind of gives your body this kind of mixed signal, which is we're kind of stressed and worried and anxious, but we're trying to be in this other state to allow digestion to happen. You will not be able to, to digest your food properly. Your digestion will be slowed. It will be slightly erratic. There won't, you know, it won't be comfortable. It's crazy. And so it's stopping crazy. for that half hour and just taking yourself away being away from a screen or going for a walk, taking, even I I tell people, I want you to just take three long controlled breaths before you start eating, just to give your body the signal that it's time to move into digestion mode now. So eat the right stuff and then actually give yourself time to eat it. And it's not a small thing, right? Like this, what you eat will affect your brain power Mm -hmm. and, and how you eat will affect your mood in ways that really matter like if you're Mm -hmm. trying to save the planet or indeed Mm. do anything decent like we need you at your sharpest right and if that means i don't know you maybe have a longer lunch break and you do don't do one other task you're going to do on balance that's Mm -hmm. better yeah i think i think you'll end up most of the studies show that you'll end up being more productive um when you give yourself adequate rest because then you're not you're not running on fumes. Your body has a chance to recover and come back. But also, yeah, we need, in order to answer the big questions that we're all facing at the moment, whether it's an international migration or climate change, we need good brains, right? We need well-fed, well-rested, well-developed brains in order to do that work. And and one of the big concerns um, for a lot of the researchers is that we, because of our diets, because of the way that we're eating, um, something called the Flynn effect is reversing. So the Flynn effect is the way that global IQs have been increasing basically since records began because of improvements in education, um, you know, healthcare and nutrition. Um, but since the 70s, the Flynn effect has been reversing. Because we're actually getting stupider. We yes. are eating ourselves stupid. Yes. I wow. might use that as a title for my next book. <laughs> Wow. And that's a worry, isn't it? Right, because actually, yes, a, yes, these because are complex issues. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> really complex issues need attention, focus, co- complexity, and systemic thinking. You need good brains to do that, um, mm-hmm. and so that's that's a worry. Your brain, Your brain. Your brain. on climate. All of this is making me think something kind of bigger about like food and climate change and stuff like that, right? And it's one of the things that 
I understand, if we're going to make a difference to what we do about climate change, is what we eat, right? Mm. Like, meat and dairy is responsible for some colossal amount, I forget what it is now, 30% or something mm-hmm. of the world's emissions, mm-hmm. huge amount of land use, all that sort of stuff. And it is generally accepted that like one of the things the world is going to have to do is eat less meat and dairy. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, and let's not talk about kind of how that is to happen, but that's a generally accepted thing. But I've been a militant vegan for 15 years now. I'm going to talk in a minute about you probably telling me why that's a bad idea. But um, <laughs> that has meant that I have got to experience firsthand kind of how, I want to say weird, but certainly intensely personal and cultural people's mm. relationship with the food oh, they yeah. eat is, right? <laughs> and Ooh, so, yes. like, when you do something that is relatively normal in the scheme of things, like, you know, eating less meat and dairy, some people, for some mm. people, that is like you have actively slapped them in the face, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, so, how, so, so the, my big thought is how are we going to get people to eat less meat and dairy? But I guess, like, how, firstly, that's about understanding people's relationship to food, right? What What is, where does that come from? People's kind of really strongly held opinions and that stuff. Um, so it comes from the kind of confluence of a few different things. One is the human brain's, in some ways, really beautiful capacity to imbue other things with meaning, right? So that, I don't know, well, like a cross. So we can imbue a wooden cross with huge symbolic meaning in terms of religion. You know, it represents faith, it represents God, it represents a belief in the supernatural, you know, all of this. Um, So that, so much so that it's sacred and you cannot touch it. The same with flags, right? Um, It's a piece of coloured material, but if you burn one or if you, you know, and and that's, that's our capacity to imbue otherwise inanimate objects with deep, deep meaning and food we do this with food and but also food isn't quite an inanimate object in the same way right because as you say food is what we put inside of us and so food becomes part of the way in which that boundary between the external world and the internal world is slightly blurred but also food becomes a a marker of identity you know so that the way that if, if let's say in my family when we make tea we always put the milk in first right oh good lord yeah <laughs> cream on top of the jam or jam on top right? of the cream right and, yeah and, and so what that means for me is that a cup of tea isn't just a cup of tea it's my family tradition it's my feelings about my parents it's my pride in where i come from it's it becomes really suffuse with all of that stuff and so if i make you a cup of tea and you look at me weirdly and go what where have you put the milk in first what's that about then it's not just that you're insulting the way i've made this cup of tea you're insulting something that's deeply held about what it means to me and what it represents to me and about me in the world so there's that so there's that there's that kind of the way we suffuse things with meaning there's the associated Um, personal and cultural traditions of food but there is also this way in which food is a social marker certainly for us um well i can only really speak from western's perspective but it is a marker of class where you shop is a marker of class is it are you do you go to waitrose or do you go to aldi you know and what does that say um it is a marker of um education you know what you eat tells me about what you know 
how much you know about nutrition, how much you know about what is good for you and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but it also, in ways that I don't think people really understand, tells me uh, something more about your beliefs. Um, and that can be about masculinity uh, or femininity. So the way that meat is associated really deeply in our psychology with masculinity. So much so that, um, you know, well, I mean, incense or insults on internet forums for men and and you know when we talk about alpha and beta men it's always associated with whether they eat meat or not yeah. in japan the term for a man who doesn't have a girlfriend or won't ever have a girl- girlfriend is a herb man as if like a, <laughs> <laughs> so he just exists on vegetables he's not yeah. really a real man so we have all of these very very unconscious i think um but uh palpable associations and and infused meaning in in what when and why we choose to eat. Yeah, I remember a, a, a woman telling me that on Tinder, like the, so many men will have pictures of them sitting down eating <laughs> a massive steak, you know, um, and like and also like cultural it's cultural ritual as well, isn't it? Yes. Like this this really deeply held sense of normal, mm. and what normal is, yeah. and people take it so kind of personally. So, what is your like when you have? I don't know if you have, but what successes or otherwise have you had in getting people to sort of think less weirdly and attackily about kind of the food that we eat and getting people maybe to step back from some of that stuff? Mm. Well, I think it's always, it's about kind of presenting that kind of information. Everything you know about food is really a concept, right? and, and, And our concepts are inherited. So the things that I think are food will have been given to me by my family, my culture, my environment, the country I grew up in. And so if I go somewhere else, I have to, I'm suddenly challenged by a different conceptualization of food, like eating grasshoppers, for example, not something that we do in England, but in other parts of the, right? (laughs) Exactly. But in other parts of the world, a completely normal, everyday and valuable source of protein. Mm. And the only difference is the concept of what is a food and what isn't a food. Right. See, horse meats, right? There's a good example. I remember when uh, everyone was losing their rag about horse meats accidentally ending up in beef burgers, was mm-hmm. it, a few years ago in the Lasagnas, UK? I think. Lasagnas. <laughs> think on that, won't you? Think on that. Um, and everyone over here losing, the, you know, going mental about it and thinking, well, it's just, you know, well, who decides... You know, if you're a cow, you're a bit annoyed at that, aren't mm. you? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why? What? Hang on. Hey! <laughs> hey! So let me ask you about this vegan thing. Now, you sure. are not my personal nutritional counsellor but the reason this is relevant to the podcast right because mm-hmm. there are an increasing number of vegans who are doing it for environmental reasons mm-hmm. and or yeah. people who are not fully vegan but will be going vegetarian or trying to be vegan sometimes and yeah. stuff like that and like just from what we know about the nutrition and all the stuff we talked about about mood and development mm. is it all right to be a vegan like <laughs> is, is, and because this matters right like mm. you don't want everyone to kind of go and do a thing without thinking about it, which is making them burned out and is making society worse. Yeah. Um, So my answer is yes, but. Uh (laughs) Um, And... Not looking forward to this. (laughs) The the but is the acknowledgement that 
meat and animal animal foods aren't just protein sources. So, you know, the big argument that people, I think, when people argue about veganism or reducing meat is, oh, you can get protein from other sources. And, and you absolutely can. Um, and, but that's not, those aren't the only nutrients that you find in animal foods. And so it's worth, if you're reducing or eliminating animal foods from your diet, knowing which nutrients, and from my perspective, perspective particularly brain um, supporting nutrients are found in animal foods that you will need to supplement. And so the big three for me are omega-3 fatty acids. So DHA and EPA, because as I say, they are essential, which means they can only be found in animal foods, um, in the diet, uh, and in particular for marine foods, so oily fish and seafood. Um, that the forms that you can, you need to be careful when you look at um, the labels on supplements, because it will say high in omega-3, but often it's um, a plant or seed derived omega-3 in the form of ALA, which really isn't the form that will support the brain. And the the brain, the body cannot really, it can a little bit, but can't really convert it into the, the form that it needs. So you need to be looking for an algae-based DHA supplement and getting a combined DHA and EPA of around 500 milligrams per day. And again, looking at the back of that packet, because it might say 500 milligrams per serving, but a serving is six tablets. And so if you're taking one a day, it won't be enough. Right. right. Wow. Okay. So omega-3 fatty acids, choline. So choline is another essential nutrient. I've heard of it. Oh, I got to be 43 and not heard of that. Friend. <laughs> Um, and so choline, literally, there is a neurotransmitter in your brain called acetylcholine, and it's made from choline, which is found most abundantly in egg yolks. So again, you know, even people in LA, you know, when people going through the egg white phase and cut, leaving the egg yolks um, out of their of their omelettes, you're missing out on these essential nutrients for brain function. Um, and again, choline, there's some in, I think, almonds and in... Um, wheat germ but you know you need to be checking the amounts that you're eating and I will be recommending supplementation um, if you are fully vegan fully plant-based and then the big one well they're all big ones that they kind of sit in a all three of them sit at the top of the podium really um, is b12 ah. so most vegans will know about b12 b12 is so crucial I mean all the b vitamins really and they work in synergy kind of feeding back on each other but b12 in particular is so important for brain health that a deficiency in b12 can end up mimicking dementia it can lead to real problems in terms of mood and memory function and the thing is that um and also for energy release um and the thing is that because it's needed in such small amounts that deficiency takes a while to kick in so someone can be you know and often people feel absolutely great when they switch to a much more plant heavy diet and and that's often just because they're eating more plants i think um and they feel much better and they feel like they've got much more energy and they're eating more fiber and all of this is fantastic um but it, it won't be for two or three years actually that those deficiencies in b12 will kick in if they're not supplementing um and they start to feel a kind of fatigue, you know, a bit of lethargy, maybe a bit brain foggy, just not feeling quite as sharp as they might otherwise. And because it's such a big lag between the point at which they cut out animal foods, they won't normally associate it with something that they're not eating. 
And so they'll be thinking, oh, well, maybe it's something I am eating. Should I restrict something else? Or should I try something different? Should I, you know, and that's when you can get into a real mess um, and people can start to get a bit overly restricting because we have this idea that if you're feeling bad, the answer is to cut something cut out, something out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. rather than put something else back in. Um, and so those would be the ones I would really think about um, if, if for people who aren't eating animal foods. So t- take it seriously and don't take it just as like, this is, hey, this is not a vegan propaganda podcast. Listen, <laughs> listen to Kimberly. Be responsible. So it can be done. We can eat less meat and dairy, but we've got to do it carefully. Yes, that's, just be thoughtful about it. Fantastic. Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on Your Brain on Climate. Uh, you have a new book. Would you like uh, to alert everyone to the new yes, book? Yes, well, not that new. It came out at the beginning of lockdown, so I guess it did feel like the world stood still <laughs> at the point that my book was launched. Um, but yes, it's called How to Build a Healthy Brain. And really, it's I like to think of it as a as a, an encyclopedia or a Bible for brain health. So um, I give you a little introduction into how your brain works and then help you with the sleep, the nutrition, the exercise, the way that dental health affects your brain health, the way that having a hot bath can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease, all of that sort of stuff. So little everyday cheap or free things that you can do to help protect your brain for the long term. So that was my chat with Kimberly, and a few things it left me thinking about. Firstly, eat a proper lunch. Like, I'm serious about that. Ever since I did that chat a few weeks ago now, I've been thinking really hard about the food I eat, and not only what I eat, but kind of how I eat it, trying to chew properly and not wolf stuff down. But on a more kind of profound level, I guess, it got me thinking about this massive problem of meat and dairy, and, and we know, all the modelling will show, that uh, you want to do something about climate change, you've got to do something about the amount of meat and dairy that is eaten right and sometimes that's just said as a thing we need to eat less meat and dairy as if that was the easiest thing in the world as if as if people's relationship to food was the same as their relationship to their electricity but it isn't you know at a cultural societal level we carry around all of these deep kind of associations with meat and dairy and and health and food and the role it plays in culture and what normal is and uh, uh, personal level we do that too and we have our own associations and hang-ups and neuroses and memories of food and what it means to us so you need different sorts of conversations i reckon when talking about food to understand that it's this incredibly personal intimate thing and like i said to kimberly i found out firsthand that people can go so funny about my own dietary choices when i say to them i'm a vegan you know, go so funny about that it triggers people at a kind of deep level. So that was Your Brain on Climate, episode one of season one. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. I'd love to know what you thought. You can drop me an email to hello at yourbrainonclimate.com or on Twitter at brainclimate. I may do other social things if there's demand for them but it's enough to keep up with those to be quite honest please 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 leave a review for the show on your podcast medium of choice write some words with your hands and put a star review ideally five stars if you possibly can at this early stage in particular of the show it makes a massive difference to get it noticed and get it up the charts the logo for the show is done by the wonderful Arthur Stovall who you can find at Design by Mondial and all the music in the show is done by me so I hope you like it. That's it. That's all I've got for this week. I'll be back soon. Look after yourself, hit subscribe, and I'll see you as soon as I possibly can. Okay, bye. Bye.